welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on? Oh, not so much. I am thrilled to be back on the mic with you this morning, Steve, to discuss resilience, a topic that is quite pertinent right now, given the year that we're coming off and the very um, interesting start to the year that we are in. Yes. You know, everybody's gone through something difficult at this point. The whole world has. We're all struggling to a degree. Um, so we're going to talk about kind of the factors that allow you to handle challenging times, but more importantly, bounce back um, in doing so. Yeah. Before we dive in, I think it's worth touching on something that an individual tweeted at me, actually, on the topic of resilience. Um, good question, which was, hey, we shouldn't necessarily focus on resilience if we're in a toxic situation. Like, We should address the situation. At what point does it not make sense to be resilient? And um, I thought about it, and I responded that it always makes sense to be resilient, and these two things aren't exclusive. So resilience doesn't say, for example, that if you're in an emotionally abusive relationship or if you're at a terrible organization or if you keep on getting injured, that you just stick with things as they are and bounce back every time. You absolutely want to try to get upstream and fix the thing that's knocking you down. But once you're knocked down, resilience is unequivocally a good thing. So um, resilience doesn't mean that you should just accept being knocked down. It means that when you're knocked down, you want to bounce back up. And a part of bouncing back up can be to try to fix the thing that knocked you down. Yeah, exactly. You know, I tie it to, if you look at the scientific definition of resilience in terms of stress, it's essentially being able to rapidly activate a stress response when you need to, but then quickly and efficiently terminate it once it's no longer needed. So in other words, like it's being able to turn things on and off when they're needed. So, you know, if you look at, should we be resilient? Well, resilience to me, looking at it through that lens is about addressing the solution as well as just like getting back up and, uh, you know, take another swing or take another hit or whatever it is. Yeah. And everyone that lives into adulthood needs to be resilient at some point. We all get knocked down. It's part of being a human uh, for better or worse. So we came up with nine factors of resilience and um, I'm just going to name them and then we can start to discuss each one in turn. Does that sound good? Let's go. All right. So we've got acceptance. Strong community, ask for help when you need it, rest when you're tired, take productive action, be patient, practice self-compassion, tragic optimism or emotional flexibility, and exert agency. So those are going to be the chapters of this podcast. So given that there's nine, let's dive right in. Acceptance. What do we mean by acceptance? Why is it so important to resilience? Yeah, so I like to think of it as whenever we see some sort of adversity, we can either see it as something um, of a threat, something to be fearful, or we can see it as something that is a challenge or something that we have the ability to do something about it. So I think acceptance plays a large part in that, in, in, in giving you the ability to understand that there is a challenge you're facing and that you have these skills or tool sets to handle or understand it. You know, I I equate it to, as I do everything, running in the sense that we need to embrace the reality of the situation. So if I'm lining up for a marathon, I need to accept that I'm going to be running for a couple hours, that it's going to be a very difficult task that, you know, I'm going to go through some challenging times. But if I understand that and accept that, then I'm better prepared to handle the reality of the uh, demands that I'm going to face. Yeah, I hear in that two really important things. And the first is that you've got to actually be working on the real problem. And oftentimes, when shit hits the fan, we 
are either overly optimistic or we look the other way. We're willfully blind. We delude ourselves that the situation's not actually as bad as it is. And that helps us feel good in the short term. But in the long term, it prevents us from actually doing the work that needs to be done to change the situation. Because if you're working on a situation that you deem as a negative two, but the actual situation is a negative 10, you're not going to get out. And then the second thing that I'm hearing is uh, proper expectation setting. So acknowledging that something is going to be challenging, something might be painful, something might hurt, something might take a long time. And that way, when those things do happen, you don't freak out and bury yourself even worse. To use your running analogy, if you go into a marathon thinking you're going to feel good at mile 20, well, you're going to end up quitting by mile 21 because you don't feel good. Whereas if you accept that it's really going to hurt, you run through that pain because you know it's coming. Exactly. It's all in my, you know, in my terms, it's all about setting the appropriate expectations so that you prevent the spiraling. Yeah. And that spiraling could be negative thoughts. It could be ruminating self-talk. Um, it could be, as you stated, that freak out where, um, you know, your expectations were much happier and glossier than, than the reality that comes. But you put yourself in a situation and set things up so that you're prepared to deal with reality. Um, and in many ways, this goes against like common um, bullshit, the power of positive thinking. Yes, the power of positive thinking, like, you know, will your way through it, like ignore the pain, etc. Like, that stuff sounds great. But ultimately only works on easy tasks, right? On tasks that I could get through anyways, right? I can positive think my way through writing an email. I can't positive think my way through writing a 300-page book. Yeah. And also, I mean, those things, they work when you're on a roll. Like, it's really easy to think positive when everything's clicking. Um, But then when something unforeseen happens and knocks you off your mojo, trying to force positive thoughts generally just backfires because then you don't have them and then you're like I can't even think positive. So I'm I'm with you 100% on that. I think another thing that is interesting around this first factor acceptance is that it is um it's very empowering and this is a total paradox, but it's very empowering to think of something as really bad because then it sets you up to be pleasantly surprised. So again, in the short term, it feels so much better to be like, oh, the situation's not actually that bad. But if you just rip the Band-Aid off and you're like, ooh, this is going to be really hard. Like I, we, the team, the organization, the country, whatever it is, we are in a really rough spot. Then you empower yourself to, again, take productive action, something we're going to talk about more later because you're working on the actual thing. But also, you're not like you can only be pleasantly surprised. Um, so it's really a- about like accept. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's about accepting the situation, <laughs> acceptance. But what I was going to say is acceptance and low expectations go hand in hand with resilience because generally, if you're calling upon resilience, it's because you're in a challenging situation. Yes, couldn't agree more. So All right, go ahead. Why don't we go into the next factor, which is ask for help when you need it. And this is another one that I think, Brad, goes against some of the uh, common advice there or the common expectations of, you know, resilient individuals are self-reliant and just get things done. Yeah, so exactly. And you nailed it. Like, resilience is not an individual thing. So principles two and three, it will combine them. Ask for help when you need it in strong community. Uh, That has nothing to do with just you. So research shows that very highly resilient people not only are pretty quick to ask for help, but they do a really good job of sizing up when they actually need help. So they're not asking for help when they don't need it, but they are asking for help when they do. And that sounds so simple, but so many people do the opposite. They ask for help when they don't really need it, when they can figure it out. And then when they truly need help, they don't ask for it. Um, And I think that a lot of the whole self-help industry, by definition, right, self-help, it kind of like precludes 
getting help from somebody else, when in fact, um, getting help from somebody else is often so critical to bouncing back when you're in a tough situation. Yep. And, you know, I think that community and willingness to ask for help does a couple different things as well as it allows you, if we're talking about resilience and bouncing back and handling stress, well, part of that process is in just that processing what you've gone through or what you're going through. Yeah, that's community. So actually, yeah, let's parse these out. So let's do it in the reverse order. So let's start with community here. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so when we're looking at c- community here, it's part of it is like having someone to work through the difficulty and the challenge that is going on. And my, one of my favorite studies to to kind of back this up or validate this, especially in the sports world, is that they've looked at all sorts of um, different ways to, let's say, decompress or watch film or go over a game after a tough loss, right? And all these studies show that if you do it with a friend, right, if you're decompressing, processing, hey, what went on, um, with a friend or teammate, you get a different hormonal um, spike or a different hormonal outcome than if I did that by myself or with a stranger or with someone I don't know very well or with with a coach who I don't interact with much, right? When you do it with a friend, you have a decrease in stress hormones and an increase in like positive um, recovery hormones like testosterone. And the reason behind that is just it allows you to process, it allows you to shift out of this threat state into this, okay, what are we going to do about this state? And that's where I think this strong community and support around you uh, really comes in hand. Another study that you've written about, Steve, has to do with people hiking up a really steep incline, right? And if they are going through the task with other people that are sharing that challenge with them, their perception of effort goes down. So it's still really hard, but they have a much better experience doing the hard thing if they're doing it with others. Is that basically the gist of that research? Yeah. And the interesting part is too, they'll also um, they're also appraise the challenges easier. So they'll see a really steep hill as o- only a smaller incline, right? So it, it impacts not only like our perception of effort, but, uh, but also our perception of the difficulty of the task at hand. And I think that taking this off of the playing field, you could say that various movements for social justice, like a huge part of a march, isn't just to um, like go out and make a point, but it's to feel part of a community. And on small scales, this is when shit really hits the fan and you get on Zoom because of COVID times. It used to be in person, hopefully, but you get in Zoom with some close friends and you hash, rehash what happened, talk about what to do next. You tend to feel better because you're sharing that challenge with others. And at a large scale, like we saw with a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests, when there's severe injustice, just the, the power that you get by feeling like, wow, I am not alone in this. I am a part of something bigger um, goes a long way to giving you the energy to help correct the problem. So really, really important to resilience is, um, is this notion of community. And there always is the opportunity for community. And what's fascinating is some of the most um, tricky things to bounce back from. So in particular, I'm thinking of like a bad depression. Part of what makes it so hard is so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? So common to a bad depression is your brain falsely telling you that you're completely alone. No one else has ever felt this way. No one else ever will feel this way. No one else will understand. And it's, it, it's because of that, as in large, that why it's so hard to get out of depression. Because the truth is so many people have gone through that experience. So it's almost like... Um, the, the opposite proves the rule that community is so important because one area that really gets people, a core part of the disease, is the brain making them think that they're all alone. Um, so I, again, community is super important. If you are feeling like you're all alone, whatever you're going through for whatever reason, um, you're probably not. Like There are a lot of humans out there. Most people have gone through tough stuff. And then the last thing I'll say about community 
on a more positive note, but also related to resilience, is when everything is going really well and you're crushing it, community helps to celebrate those joys. So you really milk them and get the most out of them. And that's super important because then when things don't go well, you've got those joys to look back on, keep you in the game. And it also helps to provide gravity and keep you grounded because unchecked success often leads, we've written about this, we've podcasted about this, it often leads to pretty low lows. Um, So it's not just about when you fall down, community helping to hold you up. It's also about community holding you down to the earth when you're doing really well. And tying these two uh, factors, components together, the stronger your community, the more willing you are to ask for help when you need it. Because a stronger community means that there aren't going to be as many artificial barriers there. There's not going to be this, hey, I need to be fake macho or tough when things are going really difficult because you have this support group that has seen you go through the thick and thin um, and depend on you. And I see this all the time um, in my own coaching practice and working with distance runners is you – one of the perks of of cross country or track and field is you get to see each other at their highest highs and the lowest lows and you get to see people who are crying after hard races or workouts or whatever and disappointed and all that stuff but with the benefit there from what i've seen is because you've seen people go through difficult moments because you've been there on those races afterwards and like consoling people and like processing and talking through things then when people need help there's not that hesitation that there is in in the normal, we'll call it world, or the a lot of times in the business world. There's not this, oh, if I ask for help, they're going to think I'm weak or incompetent or something like that. No, everybody knows you're trying. Everyone is trying to get better. So if I ask for help, it's a signal that hey, I'm interested in figuring out how how to get you know, better, how to improve on this aspect, how, how to get through this difficult moment in my life. And it's seen as a positive thing. Yeah. And a, a, a common trap that I've been thinking a lot about, it's a fairly significant part of my next book is when we're so focused on optimization and success and at least conventional success and efficiency, we tend to forget about community. Because we're pushing ahead. We're pushing ahead. We don't need community. We can do this. We're pushing. We're pushing. And then when shit hits the fan, you get totally destroyed because you don't have that safety net that community provides. So community isn't just something to work on when things aren't going well. It's something to work on and to protect when things are going well. And often, going to the mastermind group or the support group or even just making time to get together with your friends, it can feel like such an inefficiency when you're in a really good rhythm. Why would I waste time doing this? It's going to take time to schedule. Pre-COVID, I have to commute to meet them. But that time is such a good investment because again, we're all human. We all go through dark times. And in those dark times, having that community is the most optimal thing that there is. Um, so it's, it's really important both for when things are not going well, but also to nourish it and to nurture it when things are. And the last thing I'll say in community, because I think it's important, if there are any listeners out there that are in the thick of some troubling stuff right now and you feel like you're all alone, you're not. And one thing that the internet is great for is helping you to find support groups. And um, there is a reason that support groups are so effective for people with substance abuse issues, people with mental illness people going through divorces, like all these tough things benefit hugely from support groups because the combination of community, asking for help, getting help is so foundational to being more resilient. I would just add in there that, it, you know, the support groups and all that stuff is really good. And especially now nowadays, um, Understanding and I, I like the difference between what I'd call real life community and online community is is very important. Um, both can serve a purpose and can be uniting, but I think now, especially with what we've gone through in the last ten months of kind of being isolated to a degree in real life, it's it's important to you know not 
not replace too much of your close real life in person community with like being entirely dependent online or thinking or mistaking your social media as a um, surrogate or replacer for your community, deeper community. Yeah, unless you're in the the um, like the doldrums of winter in Minnesota, put on a jacket, put on a mask, do what you can to to maintain the good in real life stuff. All right. So the next factor that we wanted to touch on is resting when you're tired. So this kind of it it at it, its face feels a little bit removed from resilience. Why are Brad and Steve telling me to rest when I'm tired? So Steve, why don't you tell listeners why rest and resilience go hand in hand? So to me, it's pretty simple. Is that going through difficult times, facing a high level of stress, like stress is stress. The way to get through it isn't necessarily to further try and deplete and will your way through things, a lot of times your body is sending you a signal that, hey, we've got to recover, bounce back, store up energy so that we can handle the difficult moments, the difficult times, right? It goes back to the very simple equation that, you know, this podcast is named after essentially that our first book, Peak Performance, talked about stress plus rest equals growth. And resilience to a degree is growth in the sense that it's coming back out of a stress situation, stressful response. So one of the things that we often do, especially for pushers, is when we are in a struggle in a difficult moment, we tend to double down on effort and work because that is how we've been taught. That is how we generally have gotten where we need to go. If it's more difficult, if it's stressful, what do we do? We double down our effort and work our way through it. Well, a lot of times that will push us further and further down this kind of um, into this hole, this stress hole where we don't have the capacity to get out of it. So interjecting rest, allowing yourself, giving yourself permission to recover, especially when you're in a difficult moment or a stressful time is is almost like I see it as restoring your energy so that you can navigate and find your way back onto whatever path you need to be. Yep. And I think that this is a really good segue into our next principle. These two go hand in hand, which is um, get going, mood follows action, productive action. So they they seem like they're opposed to each other, but I really believe that they go hand in hand. So as you're saying, Steve, rest means that when you get knocked down, you might actually want to spend some time down before you try to get up, right? Is that a simple way of putting it? Yep. Okay. Now, what can happen is once you spend some time down, the mind-body system can almost like have the inertia of being down take over. And at this point, the rest goes from being something that is beneficial to something that's getting in the way. And you need to snap out of it. So I'm going to give, I'm going to do my best, Steve, you might correct me, a physiological example of this. So really high-level athletes that have been training quite hard for a long period of time, before a big and important event, they tend to do what's called a taper, where they reduce their training load, both volume and intensity. And this taper can be anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, depending on the circumstances of the athlete, the event, their fitness level, all that good stuff. Well, what's interesting is most athletes in the couple days leading up to the race will do a few really hard, quick workouts. And they're quick because they don't want to tire themselves, but they're hard because they have to snap their body out of the taper, out of the rest and recovery. So you could probably tell me and listeners all the science about how the immune system and mitochondria and this, that, and the other shuts down. My understanding of it is just that. There's an inertia to rest, and rest is really important, but you kind of have to jumpstart the engine again. Otherwise, you can get locked into a down mode. And I think the same thing applies outside of elite competition. I think the danger with rest is that we get stuck resting and energetically, we've already restored, but we need to snap ourselves back into action. So this is the example of 
someone in a rut that needs to take a week off, and then they can snap themselves back into action versus someone that takes that week off, but still feels like in their rut. And then two months later, they still struggle to get out of bed because they haven't pushed themselves back into action. Your, your body finds norms very easily. In right? your mind. Yes. Your body, that's a good correction. Your body and mind find norms very easily and they adapt very quickly. So if if my norm becomes resting, all of a sudden that that moderately difficult thing that I used to do, like maybe going for a, a couple mile jog, is now almost insurmountably different difficult because I found this norm at the bottom. Right. And you know any writer I, experiences this, by the way. Right? Like you write a big essay or book or any creative. I, sh- I mean, we just know writing because we write, but yeah. you do a big work and then you shut it down and recover. And then three weeks later, the, the thought of writing a sentence or putting pen to paper, whatever it is, is just terrifying. It, and it's, you know, it's, it, it's just how your mind adapts. I mean, it's no different than you can finish running a, a marathon or a 20 mile race or whatever have you take a couple weeks off and you go out for a, you know, a, eight mile run and it feels really freaking long, right? Um, it's no different. And it's why, you know, I love the example you used. I, I call it like you need to prime the system. So just so that you don't forget what it's like, you know, mm-hmm. even in my, you know, I'll give a non-elite example, even in my out of shape, sustaining mediocrity in athletic performance state I'm in now, Every once in a while, I still do something that perceptually, effort-wise, is really hard. Why? Because I don't want to get it too far away from remembering what it's like to, you know, go to a place that is really challenging. Because in my life, you know, coming off injury, having long breaks, it's amazing to me how quick that alarm bell in my brain will go off. If I haven't been there for a long time, I'll want to, you know, scream and cry uncle and be gone like, you know, 20 percent into into a workout Um, just because I haven't felt that alarm bell go off in your mind. If it hasn't hasn't gotten used to it for a while or hasn't experienced for a while, it's almost like you adapt to this norm. So you can take that out of running exercise world and think of it as. Every once in a while, I have to do something difficult in whatever endeavor I'm doing just so that I remind myself and my norm doesn't get set so low uh, from resting and recovering that my brain and mind forget what it's like to do something really challenging. And in resilience in particular, uh, for me, the takeaway is that we say this all the time, you don't have to feel good to get going you need to get going and then you start to feel good. So it's totally non-dual. It's pairing these two things. When you get knocked down, consider spending some downtime before you try to get back up. That's the rest part of it. Once you've sufficiently rested, if your mind-body system is telling you, I need to stay down, I need to stay down, you might actually not need to stay down anymore. You might just need a jump start. And that's where the mood follows action, just get going kicks in. There's no right way to know, you know, is this real fatigue or what I'll call fake fatigue? It's a lot of experimentation. But generally speaking, people mess up on both prongs. They either don't take enough time when they're down to rest, recover, dust off, and they just try to get right back up only to fall down again. Or they do a really good job rest and recovering, but then they magically expect that they're going to start feeling better and motivated. And when they don't, they assume they need to rest more, when in fact, what they need is to nudge themselves back into motion. So it's pairing these two things. It's a real um, breakthrough insight that I had with a bunch of coaching clients with myself over the last year. And I think it goes a long way just even like to help put words to what people might be feeling in this, um, this paradox of rest and get going. Right on. So why don't we head on to the next factor. All right. So the next factor in the order that I jotted them down, Steve, is patience. And in particular, this notion that you can't force turnarounds. So 
you can nudge them along. And we're going to talk about the importance of exerting agency. You can try to control events. But oftentimes, we try to rush. And when we try to rush, things just take longer. You know, I think this is similar to something that I tell any individual I I work with, which is you can't force breakthroughs. You can't force performance because anytime you try to force something, what happens? You tense up, you make rash decisions to try and get to a result instead of respecting the process to get there. And it's just a... um, it's just a, a not a good thing from both a performance standpoint and then also a life and well-being standpoint. So, and it's it's, stru- it's hard enough to be patient when you're striving for something good. I'd argue it's even harder when you're in a shitty situation and you want to get out of it. And yeah, then that's what I was going to point to is that whenever we're in a t- a difficult situation, whenever stress is high, things are going bad, We have this propensity and it's just this human psychological need to find some sort of answer to close this uncertainty because a lot of times what happens when we're going through a difficult time, there's uncertainty around it. It's this deep psychological need to uh, make something that is uncertain to be certain, to find a solution. Um, So patience is a skill that needs to be developed to almost like tamper down or, or fight to degree this natural inclination. Um, because what tends to happen is if we don't have that patience, we choose a solution that might be give us short-term relief, but over the long haul doesn't actually address the thing that we need to bounce back from, right? And I'll, I'll give you the, again, the running example, but think of it like this. And this applies to any exercise, not running. During the exercise itself is really difficult, right? You're sweating, you're fatigued, pain is going through the roof, you're working really hard, and your brain is screaming out to quit. Why does your brain scream out to quit? Because it wants a solution. It says, hey, this isn't sustainable, this is really difficult, let's choose that solution. Now, in the short term, in the moment, that choosing that solution to quit will give you relief and bring you back down to some sort of normal level call. But over the long term, you're not going to grow. You're not going to get the benefits that you need, et cetera, et cetera. You need to have the the patience to work through it to get to that point. And I know this is something that we've talked a lot about on both this podcast and in our writing is that when going through difficult moments, a lot of times... It's about creating the space so that you don't don't jump to these like quick solutions, quick conclusions, and try to force things because you need the space to be able to separate things, calm things down a little bit, get your inner voice under control, don't let your emotions um, spiral so that you can find the right solution, not necessarily the first solution. Love it. You want to be somewhere in between making things happen and letting things happen. You don't want to be on too far of either of those extremes. At least that's what I find to be most true. Uh, A funny parable is um, this disciple really, really wants to reach enlightenment. And he goes to this monastery and there's this Zen master and he says to the master, Zen master, Zen master, how long will it take me to become enlightened? And the Zen master said, 10 years. And the disciple looks at him and says, well, is there anything that I can do to expedite the process? I'll be the best student that you've ever had. And the Zen master looks at him and says, for you, it'll take 20 years. <laughs> and I just love that because it's, it, it really gets to this process of like trying to, how trying to force something and trying to rush something along almost always ends up in it taking longer. And the temptation is real when you're in a tough situation, as Steve said, to want to find certainty, find the answer, and get out of that tough situation. And it's not to say you should just totally set that striving aside, but you want to contain that striving. So use that energy, but channel it. And um, I would say 99% of the time, you want to temper it a little bit. 
because you got to know that, hey, my mind wants to get out of this, but I know I need to go slow. And it's kind of like you got to go slow to go fast. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of times we think the solution or the, the thing we should be training is how to push forward on it. But I'd agree. I think most of it is how to tamper it down, you know, which again runs counter to if we think of, um, especially in the sports world, the quote unquote toughness or resilience training that is often utilized. 100%. But if we look, oh, go ahead. But if we look at the military world, what they often do is exactly, you know, this is they have uh, systems or heuristics in place that allow them to have patience during uh, very difficult times. I'm thinking in particular of training the um, what they call the OODA loop, which I forget exactly what the acronym stands for. Observe, orient. No, orient, observe, something. Decide. Decide, act. Act, act. yep. So it's, again, it's something that, you know, is taught and utilized and trained to get them to, again, get some space, like find what is the right information that they need to pay attention, not not just what is, you know, um, coming at them right there, and then, you know, make a decision and then act upon it. And I think we could do a, you know, copy that to a degree or have some other system in place that allows you to uh, create that space so that you can make difficult decisions. Um, during stressful times. Yeah, I like to talk about the four P's. This was in a newsletter a few weeks back, but um, pause, process, plan, proceed, instead of panic, proceed, <laughs> the two P's. Um, four more than two creates more space. And then, um, as you guys all know, I'm a big fan of these sayings, but another saying that uh, I really like is just to remember that most things are nine-inning games, and we want to be in the bottom of the eighth, but generally we're probably only in the top of the third or the top of the fourth. And again, something else that we've written about. P.S. If you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, subscribe to the newsletter. We write about all this stuff. Um, patience. And, um, and excuse me, patience. That's what we're talking about. When, when you're being patient in the moment, it seems that time expands, particularly when you're dealing with something hard. So the four months that you are in the middle of a crappy situation, they feel like four years. But then, truly, four years later, when you look back on that situation, it feels like it was just a speck of dust. And they call this the compression and decompression of time. And when you are in a tough situation, your mind tends to ruminate. And when your mind ruminates, time passes more slowly because you are literally having more discrete thoughts about what is happening. Whereas five years later, when you're out of the rut, you think back and you just think, oh, that was a crappy time. And the difference between having 100 thoughts about how terrible your situation is and saying, oh, that was a crappy time, literally changes how you perceive time. So there's not much to do with this other than to know that when you're in the middle of a real bad, dark, deep challenge, if it feels like forever, it won't feel like forever later. So you just have to get through it. Yep. All right. Um, so next up, self-compassion, because it's hard to get through it. So what do we mean by self-compassion? Why are two dudes, one who is very jacked up, the other who is a very fast runner talking about self-compassion? I'm jacked up in my own mind, I should say, not in the mind of anyone else. And if you'd like to uh, see Brad lift occasionally, you can always check out our Instagram where Brad shows off his lifting skills. That so, is not true. <laughs> I loathe to post on Instagram my lifting skills. But I will say for listeners, a chance to pat myself on the own back. I am up to a solid rep back squat 285 at a good RPE 7 or 8. So very controlled, very smooth, a few more in the tank. My sense is that 50% of people are going to be like, oh my gosh, that's so much. Brad is so strong. And 50% of people are going to be like, Brad is so weak, which is a good lesson in fitness in all pursuits, which is you just need to beat yourself. That's, okay. our, um, that's my little um, my off-ramp on fitness. Okay, back to the show. Sweet. Um, all right. So talking about self-compassion, I mean, it's pretty simple to me. Be kind. 
to yourself. Why? Because like we tend to we we tend to remember and over index on the negative, especially when we're going through difficult times, especially when it's life is stressful and it's a challenge. The negative uh, stands out um, much more so than the positive, and we tend to. Again, as we've talked about all episode, we tend to ruminate our thinking, get centered around it. Um, there's the entire, there's that nice psychological phenomenon called the peak and end rule, which the peak means that we remember things at their most, you know, um, I'd say aggressive or highest arousal state, which is often the negative in this sense. So it essentially uh, blinds ourselves to seeing a reality that isn't entirely real. And the way to kind of recenter yourself to um, remember what or to find reality in the real sense is just that self compassion. Be kind, like bring yourself back down. Remember that it is very, very difficult to be a human being and that we're going to go through some di- difficult stuff, and that's okay. Yeah, so contrary to what you probably learned in school, research shows that the more harshly you judge yourself after failures, the longer it takes you to bounce back. And the kinder you are to yourself, the more swiftly you bounce back. And this isn't rocket science. It's actually quite rational. If you're judging yourself, you are not doing anything to make the situation better. It's just a waste of energy. And often you make yourself feel guilty and ashamed, which just leads to more of the negative behaviors that might have got you stuck to begin with. Whereas if you're kind to yourself, you literally just dust off and get back up and then start doing things that could potentially make your situation better. Um, So that's one point I want to make on self-compassion. The other point is that I think that another way to think about self-compassion is just being present for what's in front of you with an open and curious mind. So, so much of what holds us up is our rumination, catastrophizing, thinking about what's happening versus actually dealing with it. So a mantra that I love to use, I use it with all my coaching clients, is when you catch yourself like starting to lose control, when the negative voice goes off in your mind, um, I just say, this is what's happening right now. I'm doing the best that I can. This is what's happening right now. I'm doing the best that I can. And there's nothing special about that mantra. You could come up with one of your own but something to just bring you back into the present moment so you can get out of that thought cycle in your head and deal with what is in front of you. So important to resilience. Because guess what? If you're working on the problem or the solution, you're not judging yourself. Yeah, that judgment is is huge, which I think brings us into our next topic. Wait, can I just give one more example, Steve? I've written about this, but... um. It, it really, because if, if self compassion sounds really conceptual, especially for the dudes that are listening that are like about to turn off right now because like self compassion, Brad and Steve got really woo woo overnight. Um, so I'm going to make this real. It's only Brad. So I know <laughs> that's not true at all. I didn't get woo woo overnight. I've been woo woo for the last three years. You're just the one that's talking about um, centering yourself, Steve. I picked up on that. I'm very proud of you. Um, Steve Magnus, center yourself. Anyways, and I agree. So self compassion in action. So when my son was first born, he was not a good sleeper. And I'm a very good sleeper. And it was very hard for me to have a not good sleeper waking me up all the time. And I would often judge myself so hard when he woke up. I'd be like, oh, crap. What kind of mistake did we make? I'm not going to sleep. If I'm not going to sleep, that means I'm not going to get anything done tomorrow. I'm going to be in a terrible mood. Um then I'd say, oh my gosh, I'm having these thoughts. I'm not rushing in to change my kid's diaper. Does this mean that I'm a bad parent? If I'm a bad parent now, what's it going to be like when he's in high school and it gets even harder to you know, deal with having a, an adult child? Blah, 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 all the way down. And I started to practice what I preach. And I'd catch myself doing that. And I'd be like, this is what's happening right now. It's hard to have an infant. It sucks that I'm up in the middle of the night. But let me do the best that I can. And Often, it literally just meant changing a diaper, being up for five minutes, and going back to sleep. And you know, it, it totally representing what this research shows, it wasn't my son being up in the middle of the night that was keeping me down. It was my response to it and the voice in my head that was keeping me awake for two hours. And I like telling that story because it makes it real. 
And you can see how that applies to so many situations in our life when we're the thing that prevents us from getting back on the path. Love it. Glad you uh, got to share that story because I think it, you know, hopefully helps conceptualize it for some of our our listeners. Um, So let's jump into, which I think is tied to this, the next one, which is having tragic optimism or slash emotional flexibility. So what in the world does this mean? To me, the prime example of this is a guy named Abe Lincoln. And if you know anything about Lincoln uh, beyond the, you know, general presidency, Civil War type stuff, is that he was a man who suffered from uh, what they now believe is depression. And even though he struggled with it his whole life, um, it gave him a sense of having almost this tragic realism to his perception on things. But you also know, if you've read any of Lincoln's speeches, is that he's he's often quoted as having this essential eternal hope for the world to be better, to for the United States to come together. And this is during, again, the Civil War, our nation's probably darkest moment, is over the long haul, he has this faith. And I think that's why he's this great example if you of having tragic optimism, because in the real time, in the moment, dealing with a civil war and a broken nation, he is almost depressingly realistic. He wants to know what people are going through, you know, where, where, you know, they're losing the war, what they can do about it. Like you read any of his writings and it is almost depressing reality. But then you look at how he's seeing the future and he's saying, Hey, if we get through this, if we can come together, the future is bright. I have faith in humanity over the long haul. And I think that example, that understanding of tragic optimism is exactly what we need when we're going through really difficult times. Yes. When everything is going great, you know, positive optimism, all that stuff works really well. But if we delude ourselves when things are are difficult, it prevents us from doing what we've talked about a lot, which is seeing reality, embracing reality, and figuring out a way how to handle it. But at the same time, if we get almost that depressive realism without the optimism, then we're setting ourselves up to spiral. So it's really holding these two counter ideas Uh, together at the same time that allows you to best handle and navigate difficult situations. Love it. Um, Nothing to add. Just to summarize, I'm going to quote my friend um, Emily Eschefani-Smith, who writes for the New York Times, among other places. And she's written quite a bit about tragic optimism. She defines it super succinctly as the ability to accept the inevitable pain, loss, and suffering in life and move forward with hope anyways. Great. So thank you, Emily. I really like that definition um, because it it, it just gets to the tragedy and the optimism, as you so elegantly pointed out in your Lincoln example. So the last principle and... It's an important one. And I think that the reason we're doing it last, not I think, I know the reason that we're doing it last is because we debated whether or not to include it. Because so much of what we've said has been in the spirit of accept what's happening, be patient, let go a little bit, accept the tragedy of it, be kind to yourself, rest. And yet the last thing is to exert agency or to take control. So once again, a lot of... um non-dual thinking for resilience, how do we square exerting agency or taking control of a situation with letting go, accepting, and some of these more passive things that we've spoken about? Sure. So I'm going to go with uh, dealing with difficult situations. Um, Actually, I'll go with war. Um, Victor Frankl... Difficult situation. Yeah. (laughs) Victor Frankl, who many know as the the uh, Holocaust survivor plus a psychiatrist, psych- 
psychologist uh, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. In Man's Search for Meaning, he gives this great example of having control during, again, the most you know difficult of times in perhaps history, um, going through concentration camps. And he said that one prisoner told him to increase his chance of survival, he should shave every day, right? And why was he doing that? Why would you say that? Well, there were two things. One, you don't want to look you don't want to look as if you're going to die because then they'll select you and, you know, might give you, might kill you. Send you to the gas chambers. I'm not going to euthanize. That's exactly what they did. Yes. So, um, but the other thing was it gives you some sort of control um, when you don't have much at all, when they had nothing else to control, right? And if you look at the research around this, there's actually a, "Quote unquote diagnosed disease called give up itis, which is when really people would die. This, yeah, yeah, when people would die during concentration camps, when they were prisoners of wars, when they were going through really, when they were stranded um, at a, on an island or on a boat lost at sea, like people would die without any with uh, before, you know, they had a physical reason to. We'll say even though they were going through a difficult time." And the reason was, was, or the the diagnosis essentially comes about is that you've lost having any sense of control over what's going on and you just kind of let yourself go, essentially. So they noticed this at first during the Korean War with prisoner of war um, during it. And then it it went on into the Vietnam War. And you know, that's where, again, we're talking war, but the takeaway on this is pretty simple is that when you're going through difficult times, challenging times, is that we often lose our agency. We feel like the world is against us, like nothing can go right, as if we can't handle the stress that is, um, you know, surmounting, and that we need to have some appreciation that there is some semblance of control that we have the ability to do something to work our way through this or else, you know, the body essentially gives up at the extreme end of this. Yeah. I think again, man, you've nailed these last two really well. The, the human soul, I'll say it likes to have agency in the world. Um, I wrote about for this week's newsletter that'll come out, I guess, if you're listening, the day this podcast drops, it'll come out tomorrow. If it's a day or two later, it's already out. But just mastery and why mastery is good for mental health. And it doesn't matter whether you're pursuing mastery in baking, gardening, exercising, art, writing, you name it. It's not the activity, but it's the fact that you are exerting control, doing something in the world and seeing a result that you can trace back to yourself. And um, philosophers smarter than I, starting with Matt Crawford and his beautiful book, Shop Class for Soulcraft, has just extensively documented how that is so good for us as human beings. And even when we're in a really shitty time, if we can figure out ways to exert agency, ideally in ways that help make the situation better, but even if you can't, in totally separate realms of life, it goes a long way. An example from COVID times is everyone started baking, gardening, and exercising. So clearly, uh, that did nothing to help prevent COVID. I guess you could kind of argue that maybe exercising makes your immune system more resilient, but that's many degrees removed from an acute effect. So it wasn't about COVID. It was just about being able to feel like I'm doing something, I'm in control of something, and I can see a result from that thing. So um, yeah, it's really important to have areas of your life that you can get on a path of mastery, exert agency, um, again, ideally, when we're talking about resilience in a way that's actually working on the tough situation. But even if it's not, it can be something totally unrelated and that's fine. Uh, I told this story before on a podcast a long time ago. I think it was on our podcast about um, physical practice and developing habits. But I coach an executive who's an entrepreneur at a company that has performed really well during COVID, but it's been freaking hard. 
And she was just feeling down and burnt out. And we diagnosed the problem as complexity. There's just so much going on with COVID, investors, employees, the company's growing. And she felt like that there was nothing that she was doing that she actually like truly had direct impact on or control over the outcome. So I'm coaching her as an executive, not an athlete, but we decided that the best recipe for her was to like work on her pull-ups and push-ups just because it gave her something to exert control on and try to master. And sure enough, two months later, she felt like she was doing a much better job leading her company because she had a push-up and pull-up routine. Had nothing to do, I'm convinced. Like This is a woman that runs, so it's not like you know releasing good neurochemicals to her brain. This was simply, she is a pusher. She's used to controlling things. She needed an area of her life where she could start at point A, put in some work, and get to point B. It's a powerful thing, you know, that that agency, that perception of control. I think that's why running or having some movement practice in your life is so important. Um, not only for the physical benefits, but as you said just there, it gives us some freedom and control over our 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 body and our mind that we often like neglect or don't have in other pursuits. Love it. All right. Well, let's wrap up. And I want to wrap up by summarizing what we're going to call the nine factors of resilience. But before I do that, I want to make a quick ask. So to those that have been listening for a long time, thank you. It seems like we are breaking through a plateau in downloads. So um, over the past few episodes, lots more people are listening to the podcast, which is great because we want to get this conversation going far and wide. Um, many of you also know that we are not podcasters first. We are writers and coaches. So we appreciate your feedback and we read all of it. So two asks. The first is if you enjoy the show, please, please, please share it with your friends, your family, and rate and review it on Apple Podcast as that helps bump it up in their black box algorithm for more people to discover. And then the second is, if you have feedback, if there are meaty topics that you think we should cover, um, get in touch with us. So you can go to our website, www.thegrowtheq.com, fill out the contact form. We read all of those. And as long as you are not the person that is continuously emailing us every week telling us that Trump won the election, we will respond to you. Um, so, and if that guy's listening out there, you can stop emailing us. You're not going to change our minds. Um, all right. The nine factors of resilience. Here we go. The first is acceptance. The second in married with the third is strong community and ask for help when you need it. The fourth and fifth, the paradoxical pair. Ooh, paradoxical pair. Rest when you're tired, but then get going if you feel like you've overrested or you're in a rut. So remember, this is about when you're knocked down, take some time to get down and stay down, but then get yourself out of it, even if it means you have to force yourself out of it. Patience. It's a nine-inning game. Don't rush the process. You often have to go slow to go fast. Self-compassion. It's hard to be a human. Be present. Be kind to yourself. Sounds woo-woo, but it actually helps get you on the path much faster and much more strongly. Tragic optimism or emotional flexibility which is Steve's wonderful Lincoln story. So it's accepting the suffering and the crappiness of life, but continuing to move forward with hope and holding both of those two things at the same time. And then last but not least, the power of exerting agency and finding areas that you can exert some control on and where you can trace um, results back to the effort that you put in. Um, And again, we open this up by saying, Resilience isn't a cure-all. You can be super resilient, but it's still not good to get knocked down every week. So like, this is the example of the, the workforce that tries to be really resilient because that's easier than fixing their shitty bosses. So they just make all their employees resilient. Um, but it's not either or. You want to both address the thing that is causing you to get knocked down and gain the capacity to bounce back. Because as we said in opening, if you live to be an adult, you are going to get knocked down many times because that is just how this game works. Love it. Lovely summary. So listeners, until next time, hope you enjoyed.
Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.